0: Welcome to the Machine Learning and Healthcare podcast by Skin Analytics. I'm your host, Neil Daly, and this is where you can hear all about how machine learning technology is changing the world of healthcare. Yeah, well, just, um, I, I guess, bringing us back uh, again to some of the detail that we wanted to cover, I think that uh, you were telling me just before we started this podcast about uh, the new AI code contact and, Uh, about the principles that they lay out there. And I wonder if you could dive into a little bit on how they interact with clinician trust.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The first principle of the NHS's new AI code of conduct is about understanding users, their needs, and their context. So it absolutely fits squarely with this. And you can kind of break that down into three components. You can kind of look at it from a sort of... um, Clinical, rational, scientific perspective. You can look at it from a sort of emotional and personal perspective and also from a practical perspective. And in each of those areas, there's, there's really interesting sort of factors to consider about what would help um, someone who's going to adopt this technology to trust it. And we can go through each of those. So, in, in terms of clinical, rational, scientific, um, it's really important that users understand the technology. What it does and how it can be used, and um, as you um, sort of said earlier, Neil, that um, AI can sometimes be um, a bit mysterious. Uh, people not really, um, you know, understanding the statistics behind it and that sort of thing. Well, um, one of the things we've we've found is that using analogies can be really helpful. So, for GPS familiar with a test to find blood clots or to rule out blood clots, the D-dimer test. It's um, we can sort of um, use that analogy to say, well, if you're uncertain about skin cancer, whether or not a, this lesion is, is malignant, and you want to rule it out so you can safely send a patient home rather than refer them, you could think of our test as being similar to that. And GPs who are familiar with that test can take a lot of comfort from going, oh, yeah, I know when I would use that test. I understand. I see. I can, I get it. I can understand how I might use your technology now. Another important thing around um understanding the users is the sort of the fear of ai being this black box and that it's constantly changing its behavior and constantly learning from all all the sort of inputs that it gets and of course um, medical devices have to be very carefully um locked down and and made very reliable and repeatable so our ai doesn't self-learn all the updates are, are carefully managed to ensure that um the performance level of the the ai is is known and assured and only when we've got sufficient evidence and more training data and um we validate that it works even better than it does before we rule out another version and um people are generally reassured when they realize that it's not this thing that's constantly changing it's um it's very carefully managed
0: Absolutely. And, you know, just picking up on some of the things that you said that, uh, in my experience, and we've covered this a little bit in some of the other podcast topics, is this idea that the clinical, rational, uh, scientific evidence that we present about our technology is not necessarily as easy to consume as we kind of feel like it is. So, you know, the idea of sensitivity and specificity and what that means in the real world Uh, there's a sort of an assumption that clinicians are comfortable and familiar with them. Uh, But when you talk to clinicians, or even when we talk internally, you realize that those are abstract measures that are specifically chosen to be good comparators across different study designs and all these sorts of complex uh, uh, medical evaluations. But in the real world of understanding what it actually means, uh, they're, they're not actually very intuitive. And so I think one of the challenges that I think we all face in this field is when you're building a technology that is so reliant on statistics and is so uh, that the effectiveness of it is based in statistics, how do we translate that back into real world uh, figures that mean something that people can interpret? And especially clinicians, when they're making decisions about a referral pathway that can affect someone's life, they really want to, from our experience so far, Understand how much can I trust this? How how often is this wrong? When is it wrong? And then they can apply their own experience and training to interpret that result to get a better outcome for those patients. And and that that is still a work in process. I think the the scientific rational reason for people to use it um, is a really important one for us. Um, probably one of the most important drivers from the top level but figuring out how to translate that into actionable evidence or for clinicians, I think is, is one of the biggest challenges for the whole industry. Absolutely. And then if you move away from uh, where I'm obviously most comfortable, focusing on the, the scientific and rational, uh, into the more complex uh, emotional and personal, why, why don't you outline how we think about uh, that side of things?
1: Sure, yeah, well, that pleasing things like um, people's affinity for new technology. Some people are are quite up for trying out new technology, new gadgets, new approaches. Other people are much more conservative. Typically, um, medicine people are relatively conservative with the tools that they use. So, um, one of the things we need to consider is for people who are less um, technophilic, less up for new technology, how we encourage them to to adopt it. Um, one of the things there is, is of course, um, looking at other people who have already. So once. Um, a GP's friend down the road is already using a certain technology it's a bit of a, a sort of peer pressure potentially to to have a go at it as well and, and have a try so there's kind of that that sort of what are my peers doing thing as well that plays into whether or not people trust or adopt um, technology um, and then that's that sort of takes us back to the high region low thing as well that um, rationally um, clinicians might Want evidence that yes, the AI performs with a certain sensitivity specificity, but ultimately, when they come to a conversation with a the patient, they just want high, medium, and low, so that they can have a, a relatively straightforward conversation. Saying, well, if it says high, well, obviously I need to refer you. If it's low, you don't have to worry. So there's there's an interplay with the, the um, more scientific side of things as well. And from our perspective, as, as a business, really to to meet the emotional and personal angle here. It's about us developing our case studies of the, the um, organizations that we help with our technology to then use those and spread the story and, and help um, excite other people into, into following the same path.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a real uh, challenge in, in healthcare that again, I think we overlook in many times is how do we make, uh, how do we make something so usable for clinicians that they, they want to use it? And then how do we, give them the, the confidence to use it um, from a sort of that personal interaction with technology perspective, because they're, you know clinicians are like, um, like the general population. There's a huge difference in comfort with technologies. And we see that in our deployments in Norwich and in West Hampshire, where some people just pick up the technology and go, wow, this is really easy. And some people pick it up and they look at the phone and they turn it over backwards and then they try and attach the dermoscope by you know, putting it into the charging slot on the phone and do sorts of things that people who are technically comfortable look at and just go, why would you ever try that? Uh, and so those sorts of little insights, again, uh, are sort of showing us that huge variation in, in uh, these drivers for people to adopt this technology and, and how we have to a bit of work to do still with AI to, to unlock that emotional, personal value. But moving on, uh, you mentioned the third section, uh, or third way to think about, uh, how we sort of break down clinical trust and considerations.
1: Uh, can you share more about that? Yeah. So that's the, the practical side of things is that, um, beyond the, the scientific understanding what it does and the emotional sort of feeling up for it, you've practically, it's got to fit into someone's, someone's, um, work day. So clinicians have got to realise why are they actually going to give this a go, make time for it and understand how it's different from what they do now. Um, If they're used to looking at a patient quite quickly and using their experience from NICE guidelines and then um, deciding to refer or not, and we're now asking them to to use a dermoscope and take an image, a quick process but it's still a bit of a change for them then we've got to understand that it fits into their way of working in terms of of where the information that we need to process a case comes from and and doing that data entry piece and then getting the results back there's various practical considerations about how it um, fits into our users um and you know gps working practices and um an element of that is is education from us to help them understand what's involved and training, of course, whilst it's a very simple process, just making sure people are confident enough to try it practically and to, to get ahead and, and take advantage of it. Yes, it might take it a minute or two extra in a consultation, but in terms of the health system and patients, uh, allowing them to go home if they don't need a uh, um, hospital um, intervention or assessment is, is massively powerful. So um, yeah, that's the practical side of things.
0: It's, it's really interesting. Again, like I re- remember you've given a lot of thought and we've had lots of conversations around, you know, a GP has a 10 minute appointment, but in reality, they have seven minutes with their patient. They've got to speak to them. They've got to ask them how the weather is, uh, all those sort of very British things to get a, a social interaction started. And then at that point, they can start talking about uh, what's wrong with them. And they, GPs often get a laundry list instead of just one thing. So they've got a lot of pressure on them to see these patients in a very short amount of time. And I remember us sort of thinking through, uh, you know, just a really technical practical aspect of of the algorithm returning a result in, what was it, 90 seconds, which objectively you look at and go, oh, that's not very long. And then you time out what 90 seconds of having a patient in front of you with you waiting for a result is like. And it was an awful, awful delay. And so we had to put in a lot of work to to go and sort of optimize the way the algorithm worked to get the response back in less than a second and really cut down that pressure. Those sorts of things that if you don't really spend the time thinking about, you can kind of miss on that practical implementation part.
1: That's it. And sometimes a patient will come in about something else. And the last thing they come to at the end of the consultation will be, oh, while I'm here, could you just look at this? So it is important that we're as slick as possible in in, um, allowing GPs to assess skin lesions.
0: And again, GPs are just like anyone else. No one else uh, has their job and someone says hey why don't you do this extra bit of work that's a little bit clunky and annoying to do why don't you do that and look forward to it no one does that so we have to make sure that to, to get clinicians to take on more responsibility and to do something that they don't do uh we need to just make sure that 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 practical use of the service is as clean as possible and that that i feel like and and correct me if, if i'm wrong because you're the product expert here but i feel like you get 80% of the way with 20% of the work, and then you've got to put a lot of work in to to sort of optimize and get those real, uh, really sort of subtle improvements that people just get delight from.
1: Yeah, exactly. So there's a constant path of improvements that we can continue making. Yeah, absolutely. You're right.
0: So thanks, Finn. I really appreciate the time to run through that with you and and share a little bit about how we're thinking about sort of clinician trust. I think the the important uh, piece for us is that You know, clinician trust in artificial intelligence is brand new. Artificial intelligence is brand new. And we've got a lot of work to do to try and figure out how to make these tools uh, a valued member of the clinical team, as uh, Dr. James Samaru kept on telling me. Uh, And there's a lot of work left to do there. But we really have tried to prioritize and focus on it here at Skin Analytics. And I think at some point, as we go through this uh, process of, of taking the learnings out of the imperial college work is we'll try and do more updated uh podcasts and share some of the insights but also write some white papers to, to share what we've learned along the way but uh i'll leave it there and just say thank you very much finn i appreciate the time and i hope uh, that other people enjoyed hearing our views on this hi everyone thanks for listening to the machine learning and Healthcare care podcast and for making it all the way to the end of this episode if you enjoyed it remember to subscribe rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow us on all of our socials so you don't miss out on any of the latest content around machine learning and healthcare.